Hello, my oral surgery friends. This is your host, Dr. Grant Stuckey. In this podcast, you will hear surgeons discussing ways to improve the practice of oral and maxillofacial surgery. The goal of this podcast is to evaluate every aspect that a surgeon can improve in order to create a better experience for patients, staff, and the surgeon. Most of the information shared in this podcast will be based on personal experience and opinions. The methods discussed are meant to provoke thought and should be supplemented with research into the approved studies prior to making changes to one's way of practice. Without further ado, please enjoy this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Welcome to another episode of Everyday Oral Surgery. Today I'm with Dr. John Zuniga. It's great to be with you, Dr. Zuniga. Thanks for joining us. Dr. Zuniga is an oral and maxillofacial surgeon practicing in Dallas. And Dr. Zuniga, I was hoping you could just give us first a brief intro to yourself and your training and your current practice setup. Sure, no problem. Best way to describe me, I'm an academic oral maxillofacial surgeon. Started my career as such, and I'll probably end it as such. Had my uh, DMD from Tufts University and long time ago, and uh, then went to the University of uh, Rochester, Strongmore Hospital, and finished not only my oral surgery training, but I also received a uh, master's of science and a PhD in neurosciences from the neuroendocrine unit and brain research there. I joined the full-time faculty at the University of uh, North Carolina in Chapel Hill in 1986, how many of you were born then? <laughs> and uh, spent uh, 20 years there and in, uh, was a program director for 13 years. Then I joined the full-time faculty at UT Southwestern Parkland Hospital in 2006. Took a chair position in the Division of Oral Mexico Surgery in the Department of Surgery. And uh, as a Robert B. Walker Chair in Oral Mexico Surgery, which I still hold at this point. In September 1st of 2020, just recently, I stepped down from the chair position and am now just a full-time professor and enjoying uh, practice, teaching residents, doing research, writing papers, and hopefully we get a fellowship fairly soon. So I, um, that, that's my background. Uh, my particular interest is in neurosciences, kind of merges my research background with my clinical interest. And so I probably, my, my practice here is around 80% uh, of the time I'm now dedicating to patient care. And probably about 60% of my practice is in uh, facial pain. So I do a lot of TMJ uh, related clinical activity. The remainder is in uh, trigeminal nerve disorders. And that ranges from Nerve injuries, which I'm sure we'll talk about, but also uh, neuralgias, neuropathies, and other atypical facial conditions, which are represent a fairly small percentage of patients. So and that's, that's been a focus of my entire career since uh, joining the UNC faculty in 1986 to current. And I guess that best describes uh, where I came from, where I'm going. That's terrific. Thank you for that rundown. So there's not many surgeons who choose to focus on, you know, some of these disorders because it's, they're difficult. You know, a lot of these things are hard to solve. The patients, you know, have a lot of ongoing issues. How did you decide to focus on some of these issues, these nerve issues and TMJ? The bottom line is in my formative years, having completed my um, PhD work in neurosciences, I was particular, uh, my, my primary focus, my, my uh, thesis is on uh, beta endorphins. So that was a, a pain mechanism neuromodulator. So I had a keen interest in, in pain mechanisms right off the bat. During this time, I also was doing quite a lot of uh, animal work under the microscope. So I had uh, self-taught a certain skill working under the microscope at small levels and and working with peripheral and central nervous systems. So it just seemed like a natural progression uh, to uh, develop those skills at clinical level. So I took a, a self-interest in self-teaching in microneurosurgery, and I worked with some uh, pretty uh, well-known, well-experienced uh, uh, microneuro-nerve surgeons and microvascular surgeons. So uh, honed in on that, that technique. Now, most of our <clears throat> listeners, you know, are young 
either aspiring oral maxillofacial surgeons or young practicing oral surgeons. And, you know, we, we learned some of this in dental school, have a pretty basic understanding of trigeminal neuralgia, of temporomandibular disorders. You know, I guess words of wisdom or guidance can you offer the young oral surgeon who's trying to help patients with these things, you know, as far as diagnosing, communicating, and, and figuring out what to do with these patients? First, it's, it's like anything else in you know, what we do. And uh, we like to aspire to the fact that you have to gain exposure. From exposure, you gain experience. From experience, you gain competence. And then from competence, you gain expertise. So at the exposure level is where we all enter somehow. And the best way to be to, to have that exposure is uh, through interactions on the topic. That can be books, that can be videos, teaching programs, uh, sessions, uh, listening to lecturers, attending meetings or congresses, uh, symposia. Uh, and um, I, I think any uh, young oral mixed surgery, young, young dental student, go back further, you need to be exposed to everything. I'm serious, everything. Uh, and, and then you get to make a decision. I came in an unusual pathway, but I've always had the philosophy that uh, as a young practitioner who's developing, you need to see everything, do everything, and don't focus right off the bat and let, let that mature. So through that exposure, there's an interest in this area. Then uh, you need to gain experience. At the dental school level, you're really not going to. This is this is postgraduate work. At the level of the, your residency is is the time to gain the experiences, and uh, under guidance is the bottom line. So, experience is you know, this is basically uh, not only uh, seeing the doing and seeing the microsurgery part, but seeing and doing and treating and diagnosing the patient, and then looking at uh, seeing the patient's postoperative. Those are all very important things that I always like to uh, tell my residents. It's, it's uh, not only doing the surgery, but understanding when not to do the surgery. <laughs> because these, these uh, patients are difficult. Uh, some of them are. So you have to be able to have the knowledge to uh, when to operate, when not to operate. And then, you know, I, I think uh, Dr. Walker would always say that, you know, experience to competence, you, you, uh, to expertise, uh, experience is, is the first 10 to 100. Competence is probably after that. Expertise is after your first 10,000. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it, in a way, he's right. That um, Now, in my opinion, to get from uh, experience to, to competence to uh, ex expertise, expertise in my opinion, as someone who is, for, is able to express, contribute, conduct research, scholarly contributions on the topic. If you look at my CV, uh, I have probably one article on TMJ. And that's because I do not want to be an expertise in TMJ. It's a difficult area. On the other hand, my publication is all in tri mostly in trigeminal in pain. So I, I do consider, uh, and uh, I'll be glad to discuss the, what I know my, and my expertise in trigeminal nerve disorders. Yep, that would be great. That was, some of my next questions were in regards to those nerve disorders. What pearls have you gathered over the years as far as you know, diagnosing and dealing with some of these patients? A couple of avenues. One is, is that I think we all have, uh, you know, as uh, oral mixed surgeons, we, no matter if you don't have the competence, the expertise, we still have the obligation to make the diagnosis, provide a prognosis, and if possible, provide treatment or referral. So it, in this area of trigeminal disorders, and I'm going to refer to the broad range, not only nerve injuries, Trigeminalalgias, atypical facial pains, if you want to call, put that square peg in the round hole there, it might fit. But your first uh, obligation is to recognize it, the disorder or condition, and if possible, make a diagnosis. Now, 
that to me has been one of the significant uh, improvement over the years. Um, and what I'm referring to in late 1980s, early 1990s, uh, we were publishing and, and uh, evaluating neurosensory testing. Publish our three-level dropout algorithm for the diagnosis, and and uh, it was uh, algorithms are wonderful, but they're also horrible, and uh, they're complex. How do you? you know, they have different trees and different directions, and we've all seen algorithms. We try to memorize them, and then our brain blows up. Yeah, you know, it's very very hard, and I have it in there the whole time. Then you have an algorithm for nerve, you have an algorithm for PMJ, you got an algorithm for orthognathic, you know. Uh, it's very hard. So algorithms are wonderful, but they're also hard. But um, the algorithm we developed was had the philosophy, had the highest possibility that the diagnosis is being done correctly. Uh, and I'm going to take nerve injury, for example. Um, it was based on the fact that we know that uh, nervous, most nerve injuries are covered. Classic third molar removal, numb lip. Uh, reported two days later, uh, there's still a 75% chance, I'm going to throw that out there as a number, that it's going to spontaneously recover. So that's not an operable um, problem, but another 25% of those patients probably would benefit by an operative procedure. Now, how do we make that diagnosis? Well, that was the concept. Uh, make a diagnosis without over-diagnosing or under-diagnosing. So we developed this algorithm, and it was based on the uh, first uh, sensations to recover versus the last sensations to recover, and it was based on time. And the idea that uh, if there's severe or complete anesthesia at three or six months, that is probably high probability of a non-recoverable injury. And what it did is allowed someone who had uh, a severe complete anesthesia at one month, come back and at three months be almost normal. Well, that's that's a recoverable injury. That's what it's suggesting. So that's what's the concept to protect the patient uh, from over treatment or under treatment and allow nature to recover because nerves don't go fast; they recover slowly. Well, that was the idea, but but the problem with that modality is is one. Uh, we do know that when we tested those uh, treatment diagnostic algorithms, that we did, in fact, underestimate and, in fact, overestimate in certain cases. And we intentionally delayed because the idea is to hopefully recover. Well, there were certain patients who needed an operation because they're non-recoverable, and we intentionally delayed, and therefore, when the time we went to treatment, the success rate diminished because intentional delay, uh, we know recovery is time dependent. So one of the biggest uh, breakthroughs was when we started collaborating with our neuro and musculoskeletal radiologists. And we started using MR neurography. has been around for 20, 30 years, but it was, it was the uh, power of the uh, MRI units it was the software uh, capacities and applications, uh, and the radiologists. Uh, it took a couple decades for the power to be significant enough or high enough to look at trigeminal, because it's small nerves. Look at brachial plexus, sciatic, but uh, trigeminal was relatively small and well-isolated in, in the cranium. It took that period of time to get that power. Now we have it. And now MR neurography is, is hopefully going to solve the problems that the uh, diagnostic modalities fail to adequately address. And so, uh, and we're working on that. We don't have all the answers yet, but that's a major direction. Uh, some of the challenges are not everyone has an MR high in their office or down the hall, or not everyone has a uh, neuroradiologist or musculoskeletal radiologist readily available and trained. I think um, uh, maybe some of our viewers may be too young, but I remember the first time I saw a TNJ MRI, I had no idea what I was looking at. 
and uh, it was a bunch of lights. Now I'm very, very, very comfortable. I don't need a radiologist to make the diagnosis. That's where I hope we're going to be with the MR neurography in five, 10 years. Now, at the next level is the treatment. And uh, where I think we have come from to where we're going now is largely dependent on um, um, our microscopic capabilities. Back in the 80s, uh, stereo microscopes were infrequent. They were cumbersome. They were huge. And they only had a certain range. Now, every hospital, every um, outpatient, uh, ambulatory surgery center has a microscopic availability. And pretty good, too. And the costs have gone down. Uh, so our microscopic ability, stereoscopic, is, is anyone who works in a hospital who has neuro, neuro, neurosurgery or uh, plastics or hand, you've got access to uh, the, those modalities. And where we're going uh, with microscopes is now we're going into um, 3D. So uh, I've used 3D uh, microscopy here. It's fantastic. It's unbelievable. And it's robotic also now. Now we're going to combine 3D with robots. So you can do a stereographic, using stereo microscopy, you can navigate, uh, you can use a robot assistance and, and 3D. So that's where we're going. So we're going to see more. You can see more, you can do better and, and more effectively. On the other hand, another... Um, modality that's really helped us and helped me is uh, allographs. Like the um, orthopedic surgeons in the 60s and 70s, as they began developing uh, bone banks and uh, using uh, bone allograph material, nerve allograph material was not available. It wasn't until 2008 that nerve allographs became available. And uh, Prior to that, in order to span a nerve graph, you had to take a nerve from the foot, you know, arm, or the neck. And so we did everything we could to avoid that. Now that we have an allograph that comes off the shelf, I'm more comfortable in, in uh, management, smaller incisions, uh, more aggressive uh, preparation of the nerve for the uh, nerve repair with a higher confidence level that I, I can don't have to worry about nerve graft of uh, autograph. I can use an allograph. And then we tested, well, is it, is it uh, workable? And the answer is yes. And in addition to that, we're now expanding into long span allograph. So my head and neck reconstruction uh, colleagues are now uh, doing uh, immediate mandibular reconstruction and not only moving tumor, uh, replacing with vascular bone implants, and at the same time, an immediate nerve graft. So the patient has a complete recovery of their function. So that, that's the power what we have now or where we're going next with that is these are scaffolds. And what I mean by that is they're biologic, but they're inert. Where we will probably go, what I'd like to see us go, is, is we have neurotropic and neurotrophic factor uh, application. So not only can we uh, reconnect nerves, but we can inspire them with trophic factors. Put the nerve growth factor right in there around it, uh, um, however it works. And uh, there's a lot of work on uh, immuno, uh, local immunosuppression, enhances nerve regeneration. Electrical conductivity has been shown to stimulate nerve growth. So that direction is probably where we're, we're going okay that's amazing and when, so when you're saying they're inert and they're scaffold or you, you suture in a allograft and it's kind of a conduit for the the patient's nerve to grow through exactly that's all that's what it is right now it's a biological scaffold with does it's non-protonated so you don't have a, a graft versus host rejection They've eliminated enzymes that inhibit regeneration or, or t tissue growth. So it's a processed uh, neuroallograph that works. 
And you know what? What is the mental checklist that you have when you're seeing a patient to say, okay, yeah, this patient can can probably benefit from surgery. Well, I still go through an algorithm of such because not quite to the point where I'm just going to send them off for an MRN. But my checklist is I'm always going to conduct a history. This, we're talking about nerve injury, right? So a patient with third molar injury on last Friday before the blizzard has the third molars removed and calls the oral surgeon uh, or calls me on Monday saying I'm numb. Well, I have the luxury of seeing them. I'll bring them in, and I'm going to ask them questions about, first question is, is there pain? If there's pain, well, that's a different direction we're going to go. If there's no pain, I'm just numb, doesn't feel right, you know, rubbery, that, that's not normal. Then we're going to talk about uh, when that occurred and what's the characteristics. Is there uh, any functional deficit? Uh, is there lip biting? Is there difficulty eating and chewing? One week after third molar extraction, you're going to have some difficulty, uh, but it should be you should be capable. No problem with fluid retention. Uh, if there's a lingual nerve involvement, they're going to ask about taste, dry mouth, uh, those kind of questions. If there's pain involved, I'm going to ask them to characterize that pain. Is it spontaneous and continuous? Or is it intermittent and stimulus-induced only? In other words, reading a book, there's no pain. But when I brush my teeth, there's pain. That's stimulus-induced intermittent. Uh, If you're reading a book, there's a constant pain, unremittent. And then I ask them to to qualify that. Is it burning? Is it uh, itching? So to me, itching is a paresthesia. Whereas burning is the dysesthesia and a worrisome uh, uh, term, in my opinion. Patients may use words like scalding, other variations of that. Uh, So pay pay attention to that. So the temporal patterns, the characteristics of the pain, and then pain scales. I always like to use 0 to 10 scale, but some people use 0 to 100, whatever. If it's above 7, that's more concerning than that patient at that intervention. So we're at one week, let's say they're uh, no, no pain, uh, they're lip biting, they're numb, it happened immediately after. But what if they say, and I see them a month later, and they said that the numbness didn't start in a week ago. In other words, they were fine for three weeks, and all of a sudden there's numbness. Well, then the injury was not during the surgery. And I'm going to look for other causations. And a good example is a uh, uh, osteitis progressing to osteomyelitis. That brings up that concept. But going back, numb, uh, et cetera, then I'm going to take them through my neurosensory test. And I do do that pre-level dropout algorithm, again, to uh, determine if they pass all the tests in their normal range, then I'm going to give them a diagnosis of a, a class one Sunderland with an excellent prognosis for recovery. Other factors, age is a factor. So everyone uh, across the animal kingdom, the younger you are, the more the better you can, quicker and the better more uh, recovery uh, is going to be afforded. So location of the injury, type of injury. So we're trying to define the type of injury. Location is the same, age is the other variable. And then so we have to find out the type of injury. So that's why you do neurocentric testing. And if they test abnormal, they don't test normal, then I tell them at one week or one month, okay, you're not a class one, but I don't know if you're two, three, four, or five. And the best way to determine that is I can get an MRN or I can bring you back and do serial testing at a month or two. Some patients uh, will be able to get an MRN. So in my institute, I'll get an MRN. And then I can... uh, cooperate with the radiologists, and if there's visual evidence of a class four or five injury, that's an operable. Uh, and we're in the operating room as soon as possible. So I could essentially have a patient with a nerve injury on Friday in the operating room two weeks. And so my success rate is going to be much higher than if I waited two more months. 
So that's that's the difference. Now, if MRN is not available, or the patient says I don't want an MRN for whatever reason, uh, then I'm going to bring them back in a month or two if I can, and repeat the tests. If they are normal at that time, remember they're abnormal. They come back a month later and they're normal. Okay, you are a, a class two injury. Your prognosis of complete recovery is good. So I'm not going to operate. Oh, by the way, I, I always will do uh, put them on vitamin B complex and vitamin C. And the reason why vitamin B complex is because, you know, steroids would have a role. I think you could put a patient on steroids at that point, but not for a month or two. Uh, you probably don't want to risk all the uh, negative uh, problems with the corticosteroid. So uh, vitamin therapy is reasonable. If you want to put steroid and vitamin, that's fine. I don't know of any evidence that that's any better, but I can try that. Vitamin C is because it's antioxidant. Inflammation inhibits or reduces nerve regeneration. So free radical oxygen is, a, is an inhibitor for regeneration. We do, do know that. So uh, vitamin B complex of vitamin C, they're not going to hurt you, and they may help you. And then we do sensory retraining with the technique with a Q-tip or something like that. Then let's go back to this scene. So uh, they come back two months, perfectly normal. You're class two. Your prognosis for complete recovery is good. I'm not going to operate. I talked to them about neuropathic pain. It can develop, but I'm not going to follow up unless something happens. And if something happens, I do want to see it again. I'm not going to put a, take them to MRN uh, unless they want that information, because at this point, just based on clinical alone, I'm not going to operate. Now, if pain becomes involved, that's a different problem. Now, let's say they come back at two months, and they test mild to moderate. Uh, then, I'm, then I'm going to tell them you're, you're that class three, possibly two or three. You've gotten better but it's still significant. Well, that's the rock and the hard place. And uh, often the possibility of an MRM to better identify the injury, to make a decision for surgery versus no surgery, or continue the vitamin therapies, the cell sensory retraining, and retest again in a month or two. If they're complete or severe, totally numb uh, or severe, with triggers, dystrophic changes, in my opinion, that's an operable problem. And so we talk about surgery at that point. Now, if there's pain involved, that's that's a tough patient population. And again, I go back to tell me about the characteristics. Tell me about this, is it spontaneous? Is it continuous? Is it intermittent? Um, is it burning? And then I'll take them to neuropath. I want to know if they're allodynic. I want to know if they're hyperpathic, if they're hyperalgesic, and I do testing for that. And then I do nerve blocks. And then that at any time after an injury that those pains begin, then you have to have that discussion as, as surgery is an option. But uh, our success rates aren't that great. For patients in pain? Yeah, unfortunately. Okay. What, what is the surgery and how does it differ? Mm, for pain? Yeah. Well, uh, this is where we, we're failing in this patient population. I, at this point, I don't know if we have a surgery-specific treatment for neuropathic pain. Maybe 60% of patients respond to surgery, decompression, resection, repair, uh, discontinuity, allograft, and, but 40% the pain not only comes back, but it's actually worse. Yeah. So that's why it, it's important to know which patients not to operate on. If the patient has a, for instance, has a continuous burning uh, with intermittent pain response, you do nerve blocks and nothing changes. That's the patient I really worry about because that suggests a phantom. And peripheral surgery even we know from our uh, orthopedic neurosurgery colleagues, uh, doesn't work. So they're developing different techniques called um, a TRA. Basically, they're developing techniques to kind of re-take an amputee, taking a motor nerve, 
and uh, from the amputee stump, taking an allograft, putting it down to a, a platform and removing neuromas and basically fooling the central nervous system. What seems to be evolving is that the problem is in the central nervous system. So uh, we still haven't figured out how to where where the problem is, and it may be at the central nervous system. So that's why our peripheral surgeries don't work. Okay. So you have that patient, let's say, who's you know two or three weeks out. You you get the MRN and you see a nerve injury there. Take him to the OR. Let's say it's for the infraalveolar. What does that surgery look like for you? I always uh, describe this surgery as three phases. First phase is access. Now, the access phase is only to for the for provide the proper preparation and the microsurgery phase. Those are the, the preparation microsurgery phases. What makes or breaks the repair? Access allows you to complete those. So. For infraalveolar nerve, my access is transoral. I do all my intraoral. I can uh, take a cone beam or I've got my MRN and I can overlay it with my cone beam, my panorax, so I know exactly where the nerve lives and where the injury is and the size of it. That's the beauty of MRN. So as without MRN, you don't know how big the injury is, uh, how big the neuroma is, with MRN, you can actually see that with some degree of, of uh, accuracy. So I'll access the uh, nerve and the astronometer on either side of the injury by a transcortical. I like to use uh, Sonopet or Piezo, use that uh, ultrasound modality to reduce uh, bleeding and safety for nerve access. I have the injury sighted. And then I expose a sonometer of nerve on either side of it. So it can be a fairly large access. You have to have proper instruments for retraction and visibility. I like to uh, subluxate the mandible to the contralateral side, like you do for a um, uh, carotid access, uh, just to allow better access to that. Then some people use a sagittal osteotomy as an access. That's fine. Uh, some people go extra oral. Again, that's fine. My preference is, is transoral. And now with robotic 3D microscopes, it's so much easier because the microscopes can be trained to give you the best access without straining your necks and etc. And uh, now the next phase is preparation. That's done under the microscope in my hands. Some people use loops. Uh, they have better eyes than I do. Uh, or, uh, but I, I like the microscope because I can see more because the goal of the preparation phase is to remove the pathologic part of the nerve injury. That's the neuroma, and you have to resect back to healthy nerve. So you have to see fascicles. You have to see bleeding around the fascicles because if you don't resect back to that, you could be putting a neuroma stump to a neuroma stump and you'll fail. So that's the, that's the importance of that access phase. So that's why you have to be a sonometer on either side. And then um, once that's done, the microsurgical phase, and again, in the old days, before the allografts, I would worry about repositioning the nerve and trying to avoid the graft. Uh, but nowadays, just go right to it. If it's of a five millimeter gap, then I will do a direct anastomosis with a connector. No graft. If it's more than five millimeters, I will use a graft. And the reason is that um, to avoid tension. And uh, we know that tension will cause failure in a nerve repair. So uh, anywhere we can 10% elongation will cause a, a greater than 50% reduction in axon growth. So I'll use uh, allograft anything bigger than five millimeters. And then I, my technique, I, I've adopted the connector-assisted repair. So I'm going to throw in a word for oxygen here because they had developed a clear uh, connector conduit. And uh, I'm using that technique to intubulate uh, the nerve ends. It's much simpler to do. Yeah, I don't do end-to-end uh, -end repairs anymore. 
They are taxing end-to-end. Direct repair is, is difficult. You have to make sure you get complete all the way around the nerve. Now, within tubulation, just put the nerve in and just uh, stabilize it. So I could probably go through a, an inferior and lingual nerve repair from start to finish in 60 to 90 minutes. So they go, all patients go home the same day. That's great. Very helpful to get that description. For the patient who you know, has all the nerve testing to, to show that there is a nerve injury, but you get the MRN and it doesn't show it, where do you go from there? Yeah, yeah. And that happens. And because um, the uh, MRN has been false positive and false negative. So it's not perfect. We've done the um, statistics and there's a strong correlation, but it's not perfect. So yes, that's why I still do both the clinical testing as well as the MRN. So I'm using MRN like I use MRI for TMJ. It's not giving me the diagnosis, it's giving me additional information. Now, if we get to the point, maybe when we have 7.0 and 10.0 Tesla MRI machines, we might get better detail. And then we can say, this is, I'm going to send you for an MRN, that's it. You don't have to do any testing, anything like that. But right now, that scenario you just described has happened. So if the clinical, subjective, and MRN don't match up, then I give the preference to the patient that if they're still numb, they still have a significant problem, and you do an MRN and it shows everything's normal, well, I can either repeat the MRN or say the MRN appears to suggest we don't operate, but your subjective response concern are concerning. So I maybe the best thing to do is continue doing, but do a serial exam, bring it back, make a decision at that point. And I'll say that that three-month time period is, is my limitations. I've had the opposite where the clinical testing was perfectly normal or, or near normal, and the MRN was a surprise. A significant injury. And I'm back to the same scenario. We have to make that decision. Okay. That's helpful to know. For people who are referring to you, what are you know some of the things you like to see, don't like to see as far as how they refer, the time they refer, how they talk to the patient? You know, what what's helpful for you? Well, the information about preoperative imaging might might be helpful. The time sequence, uh, what type of local was used, local injection injuries do occur. So I, that kind of information would be helpful. And uh, medical history, you know, if you have a smoker, a diabetic, etc., cetera, uh, hypertension, they all affect nerve regeneration, nerve response, and recovery. So the, that kind of information is helpful. And obviously, sooner the better. And so uh, I have to build confidence in my referrals that I'm not going to operate on every single patient they send me. I'm, I'm going to be careful because uh, my success is their success and vice versa. Got it. And when you're going back to timing real quick for the inferior nerve, you want to operate on that before the three-month mark or between three and six, or when is it for you? The, uh, you're going to have different opinions about this. So I'm going to give you my opinion. In our studies, uh, when we looked at timing as a factor, if uh, immediate repair, we had 95% uh, functional sensor recovery. If we had three months or more, functional sensor recovery was only 77%. So immediate to three months. Now, how do we get immediate? Well, that's we're talking about the, the tumor patients uh, we, we talked about earlier. That's an immediate repair. You cut the nerve, you saw it, you fix it. That's immediate. So we're in the 95 percentile success, uh, functional sensor recovery rate. And, and none of those patients have ever developed neuropathic pain, which uh, says something about the nervous system. Neuropathic pain may be a factor of change over time. So if you don't allow that nervous system to change, by reestablishing contact, that may be the key factor to treating neuropathic pain, fix the problem right away. Now, uh, 
the, the three months number, at least in our data, uh, was uh, significant. That after three months, the uh, success rate for functional sense recovery went down below 80%. So that's that's my criteria at this point. And then um, switching gears to the patient with trigeminal neuralgia, how are you treating these people and, and when do you decide to treat? Well, making the diagnosis is the important thing. The uh, trigeminal neuralgia is going to generally be a 65-year-old female, but the gender ratio is three to two. So uh, three female per every two male. Uh, the incidence is one in uh, 100, no, five in 100,000 people. So it's, it's pretty, it's not rare, but it's uncommon. And it's going to be characterized in, as uh, severe uh, pain lasting seconds to minutes, often triggered by a stimulus. A stimulus could be mechanical, vibratory, uh, thermal, and usually within the mandibular or maxillary zone on one side of the face. The incidence of bilateral is 4%. Uh, the incidence of thalmic is uh, less than 1%, very rare, one of thousand. And um, well, the triggers can be also intraoral. Uh, we've also had triggers on the lung buckle, so it can occur on the angle of the mandible. That's your, your classic patient description. Exams are, are normal. Imaging is normal. No other pathology to Trigeminal neuralgia does not involve teeth. So if you have a toothache, you either got someone with two problems or it's not trigeminal neuralgia. And um, then, you know, there is no, as far as I know, there's no diagnostic imaging that tells you got trigeminal neuralgia initially. The incidence of multiple sclerosis is like 2%. So it's, it's, uh, it's un unfrequent but not rare. So anyone under 50 with those symptoms, I certainly get brain MRI. Now, the uh, diagnosis that I usually rely on is their response to Tegretol. And uh, if their uh, pain resolves with Tegretol, then the, high, the probability is they have trigeminal neuralgia. And the management is either going to be medical or surgical. There are other drugs besides Tegretol that I use uh, at different levels of evidence. Uh, there are surgical options, which are uh, range from uh, decompression of the brain, intracranial, to uh, rhizotomy procedures, to radiation-focused radiation therapies. I do not provide those. My neurosurgeons are capable of that, so I'm a referral source for the neurosurgeons for those patients. Well, that's helpful. It gives us some information to, to work on, at least from the diagnostic and communication standpoint, to get these patients to the right place. Yeah, very helpful. Any other uh, words of wisdom or comments you have? <laughs> Just that these, these groups of patients are challenging. I think we've got to the neuralgia group. You need to have surround yourself with referral uh, sources, be the neurologist. If you're not comfortable with the medications and their side effects and, and long-term management, then associate yourself with a capable neurologist or neurosurgeon for all surgical options. Usually, I'll refer to the neurosurgeons and the teams that have highest uh, success rates are the teams that have the highest numbers of patients and they're often distributed in medical centers. For the uh, nerve injury patient, uh, again, it's exposure, and experience, competence, and then expertise. Our responsibility is to make the proper diagnosis, uh, make the proper uh, determine the treatment. And if you're not comfortable with the different treatments, then find resources. There are certainly plenty of folks and resources that are capable. I take calls without any problem because uh, I'm interested in everyone's success. Uh, the last thing that's worse for us is if, if patients don't have treatment by neglect, and that creates really problematic. As I said, a patient who we operate after three months doesn't do as well uh, as a patient uh, before. So timing is an issue uh, in these patients. The neuropathic patients, they're the hardest 
I don't have the solution yet. Uh, we're still working on it. Uh, maybe the next generation. Got it. Okay. Sounds good. Well, I really appreciate that. One last question I had for you, which could be a maybe a bigger answer, and maybe maybe it's a whole another podcast topic, but I've looked at some of your research and read some of your papers, and it's pretty clear that you are a great researcher. You know how to set up you know, research teams or systems to give very quality research. How have you uh, been able to do that? Or, or maybe, <laughs> maybe the better question is, what tips do you have for someone who kind of wants to do that? Yeah, that, that, that's a great question. And you're going to get my view. It doesn't mean it's the right one. It's just my view. And the, the bottom line is, is what made me, I think, comfortable and therefore hopefully competent, I can't judge that, someone else has to, is synthesis, synthesize the information. So it's just not take it in and do it. Take it in, question it, and then produce something from that. I learned that not from the, I hate to say it, not from my traditional oral microspace surgery training, although I had great, great folks I worked with who trained me well. I learned that, my research, getting a master's and then a PhD is a task to teach you how to synthesize information. Take that information, move it around, test it, uh, and test it correctly with the right modalities. I, I guess that's, you know, uh, not everyone has to get a PhD. There are plenty of uh, folks who do excellent quality work and they're able to synthesize information without those degrees. But that degree taught me how to synthesize that information. So I just continue that to this day. And hopefully I teach folks that I associate with how to do that. Awesome. That's so great that you went to the effort to get the PhD and learn all that and, and learn how to synthesize. And very, very helpful. Well, the banks weren't happy, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they are now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then a side question is, when you do do these nerve repair surgeries for, you know, other surgeons who damage nerves or cause the issue, um, how generally are these things being paid for and taken care of? Okay. Good question, because it affects uh, all of us. One, th this is uh, early in my career, always a concern was, well, this is a complication, and it's a dental complication. Well, I fought that battle, and we won. So I have not had a rejection from an insurance company for coverage of these procedures, because it's not a dental problem. Okay. It's a neurologic problem. So you're billing medical insurance? Correct. Or, okay. Correct. And so you have to meet the criteria for that. And it is covered by all carriers. I have not had uh, a, a denial or procedure in decades. Uh, now, uh, yeah, you had another part of your question. I'm sorry, I missed, I missed it. Yeah, no, I think that th that's the question is, how are you talking to these people and handling that handoff between the surgeon who did the inciting event of the nerve injury and then to the patient, you know, how you're talking to them, how are they paying, how are, how's that all going down? If I were to give a suggestion, I think that every surgeon usually has a discussion with their patients before they take out wisdom teeth or do surgery. And that discussion in, in, includes complications. It's, it's very rare that patients refer from an oral maxface surgeon will not know that they have a possibility of nerve injury. That's our responsibility to um, properly inform. And then when a complication occurs, properly diagnose, prognosticate, and treat. If you are uncomfortable about any of those levels, then a proper referral. Your, your responsibility is just the referral part. After that, your kind of your responsibility is obviously get them to the referral. Once they get to the referral, then it's my my responsibility. If patients document, 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 
you know, if you're comfortable making a diagnosis uh, and treat, great. Uh, if you're not, you're diagnostic, but you're not comfortable treating, well, then you know, that's what we're available for. Where, where I see most of the problems is from non-oral mixed surgeons who don't have the proper consent, don't respond appropriately, and oftentimes that antagonizes the patients. And an injured, antagonized patient is not a happy patient. And, and they shouldn't be. They, they, have, they have rights. So I think oral mixed surgeons, especially more modern, uh, and I'll call it modern because anything after 1970 is modern. They've had these discussions with the patient. So I think that we're doing injustice for patients. I think this area, uh, peripheral nerve surgery, has made us a better profession. And this is one of the offspring. Nerve injury is, is, is still the number one uh, cost for claim, but it's no longer the number one indemnity payout. So uh, that. We're, we're making strides. Nice. So helpful. I feel like it's so important for the, like you're saying, the surgeon to explain all this ahead of time and say, you know, here's what can happen. If, if this does happen, here's the pathway we would take. And all that is so much more helpful. And it, I think it helps the surgeon as well to make the referral and not be afraid to do it, you know, because it's when you're in a bad situation, the patient's upset, you're hesitant to pull the trigger and send them away. That's when it probably can spin your tires and all that stuff. So excellent information. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to review all this. I really appreciate it. Best of luck to you in Dallas. Thank you. All right. And uh, we're out of the freeze. So (laughs) (laughs) it's summer's next week. There you go. (laughs) Welcome to Dallas. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. All right. All right. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you. Appreciate it. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Everyday Oral Surgery, Surgeons Talking Shop. If you are practicing oral surgery or are in the oral surgery field and would like to be on this podcast, please email me at grantstukey at gmail.com or text me at 720-441-6059. Also, if you have any topics that you would like to hear discussed on this podcast or feedback regarding an episode that has already aired, please do not hesitate to email or call me. Thanks again for listening.